Good morning. You don't know how many times in Asia I do this. <laughs> when we go through, they have holidays in Cambodia, and sometimes people come from all over the country, and they all come in for these huge holiday festivals. And there will be literally hundreds of thousands of Cambodians coming. And they come in for this one holiday. It's called the Water Festival. And they're, they're, they're so thick, you can hardly move when you're walking down the road. But amazingly, everybody can still see me, no matter where I'm at. I'm, you know, everybody else is like here and down. And my wife is considered tall in Cambodia. And so when we're walking through this jungle of people, you know, I, there's literally thousands of people going like this. Who's that big guy over there standing up head and shoulder about everybody else? So, something I'm quite accustomed to. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would use me, God. Speak through me, Lord. Bless your people, God. Do great things. Do great things because you are a great God. And I pray this in your wonderful name. And all God's people said, Amen. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have heard me share my testimony before? Raise your hand. Okay, a number of you. For those of you who have not, I want to, forgive me for doing this for those of you who have heard this before, I want to bring you up to speed. Many of you have no idea a little bit about my past, and so for the sake of you understanding where I'm coming from, I want to explain some things. Um, when I was a kid my dad was heavily involved in the white supremacist movement. My dad um, was a very eccentric man and began to accumulate weapons to the point where by the time that I was 10, I think I was 10, by the time I was 10, my dad already owned two real World War II Army tanks. We had our own Sherman tank. We had our own M19 army tank, and they worked. My dad painted a swastika on the side of it. We had our own underground bunkers, underground command post, all camouflaged, and we had multiple bunkers. We used to play in them. We had, uh, I, I, I've shot every gun under the sun. I drove a tank before I drove a car. My dad was a very eccentric man. He was always doing something illegal. Um, I shared this in the first service. It was actually kind of funny. I forgot about this. When I went back to my, when I went back, I'm writing a book, if you don't know. Somebody tracked me down and said, you need to write a book. You got the weirdest stories we've ever heard. <laughs> and so I said, all right, fine, I'll write a book. So I started writing down stories. Well, well, you know, I had to ask my dad, Dad, how did you buy an army tank? And when you're a kid, you don't realize your dad just shows up one day and he's got an army tank. You didn't ask him where it came from. And so I, I started to have to ask my dad about all the stuff that he did. You know, we had a searchlight from a World War II destroyer on our porch. Great, huge thing. And it worked. And they had a big generator you'd hook it up to. And, of course, we, we had 11 acres. We're in the middle of nowhere. So he would f this thing would beam the neighbors. We were so far away. They were a quarter mile away. We could still look in their front window. This thing, it was so powerful. And uh, we had a... Uh, we had these massive anti-tank guns. They were six feet long, and they shot shells about this long, big tripod they'd sit on. And 
when, we were, when I went back to interview some of the neighbors about my dad, I asked them, I said, we were having breakfast one day, and I said to them, do you remember any crazy things that my dad did? And they were like, they just went up, boom. It was just like, remember the time your dad this? And it was stuff I had forgotten about. Well, the one that I remember that they, they just instantly pulled off the top of their head was the time that my dad decided he wanted to shoot a car with the anti-tank gun, an old car. He had pulled a car, and he pulled, dragged it out in the back of the yard uh, in this land that we own. And my dad had this tracer round, an anti-tank gun that's a tracer round. So, you know, if you don't know, it's got a phosphorus. As a, there's phosphorus in it, so when you shoot, it literally leaves a streak through the sky. So when you're shooting at something at nighttime, you can see where the bullet goes. He had this harebrained idea that he was going to shoot a car in the middle of the night with a phosphorus round to see what happened with it. And all the neighbors came over, and they all wanted to watch what's going to happen. Well, when you're shooting at a car in an open field in the black of night, he couldn't quite see where the car was. So he shot this gun off, and it's an incredible, powerful gun. The bullet hit the roof of the car and ricocheted off it and went ricocheting through the sky now, about five miles away is a pretty significant town. And this anti-tank gun round goes flying over the city in the black of night. The news reporter got phone calls, literally by the dozens, claiming a UFO was flying over the city. It even made the television report the next day. Rockford, Michigan had a UFO sighting over it last night. Nobody knew it was my dad's army tank, you know, anti-tank gun. And so we, my dad was happy to keep it that way. He didn't want everybody to know what he had just done. But he was always doing something illegal. And he, he just never knew what dad was going to show up with. He always had some crazy idea. We had a, uh, you know, my dad never even owned a rowboat. And one day he decided that he wanted to buy a ship. Well, this thing wasn't just a regular ship. It was a sunken ship. He bought a sunken ship off one of the back harbors of Lake Michigan. This thing was 80 feet long. I forget how many tons it was, but just the engine was 18 tons. He bought a sunken ship. He figured out how to raise that thing by himself, and he raised that ship, and we ended up living on and off it for six years. So I've been all over the Great Lakes diving on shipwrecks. And so that... that the thing about that whole experience was that my dad, he was such a bitter and angry man. And everything about his life consumed, it just oozed bitterness. And he began to abuse my family, my, bo- my brother and my sister. And he began to beat us. He found reasons to beat us. He found things that we had done wrong. And it got so bad that he would literally beat us to the point where you couldn't even scream. You, you just couldn't even scream anymore. And my dad used to make us stand at attention like soldiers. And you had to put your hands at your side and you stood there. And he would wind up. And he'd hit you so hard. And then you'd hit the ground. And you didn't lay there because he'd kick you until you got up. And my dad did that to us year after year after year. And fear became the most powerful weapon in our lives. And my dad used it. And every moment he could, he used fear against us. He would say things like, 
I brought you into this world and I can take you out. And when my dad, one time he was so angry with me, he grabbed me by my shirt. I don't remember what I had done. He grabbed me by my shirt. He pulled my little body right up to his face. My feet were off the ground. And he said to me with his face right, in the, right like this, he said to me, I had to just take you out and shoot you. One time, my dad was, safety was not very high on his list of priorities in life. One time, my brother and I, my dad came to the conclusion they were, he had built a gun range, and he put an old washing machine up on a hillside. And he set up a gun range, and he would shoot at it, this thing, and he put targets on the, on the washing machine. And he pulled my brother and I aside one day, and he said, I want you boys to tend targets. I need you to go out there and stand out there. And so he made us go out by the target. And he put targets out there, and he couldn't see when he was trying to sh- sight in the gun. He couldn't tell if the bullet was high or low or left or right without having to stop what he was doing and walk all the way out there. And the distance was such that he didn't want to do it. So he made us go out there. And he put us one on one side of the target and one on the other. And he put us far enough away that he just assumed that we would be okay. And then he was going to open fire and shoot at this thing. And then when the bullet hit, we were supposed to tell him it hit high, three inches to the left or high or low or whatever. And then he would open, we would get away and he would shoot again. But when my dad opened fire with those high-powered rifle and that bullet hit that washing machine, I was standing there watching to see what's going to happen. And in the next moment, I was on the ground. My right leg, I couldn't feel it. And I couldn't understand why I was on the ground. And I couldn't understand why I had no feeling. And I, I was rolling in the grass trying to figure out what happened to me when my brother came running and my brother had his hand on his arm, and he looked at him, and I saw him, and there was blood coming from the bottom underneath his hand. And when I saw him, my brother said to me, Mark, did you get shot too? And as I was laying there, I suddenly realized what happened to me, and I couldn't get up. And a bullet had entered right where my, my leg and my ankle came together. And I remember the panic that swept over me. My God. And the blood, I'll never forget that. It just poured out of my leg. And my dad ran down when he realized what he had done. And he picked me up and he, he ran and he put me in the car. And as he pulled the shoe off my foot to see what had happened, the blood filled my shoe. And as he took me to the local doctor, it was a young uh, a doctor, and a kind of a country doctor, and, and he knew my dad well. Unfortunately, I'd been in there more than once. And, and he just brought us in, and he laid me down on the table, and, and I remember as he took care of my brother, and he pulled the metal out from underneath his arm, uh, underneath his skin. And as he asked my dad, he said, what happened? And my dad explained it to him, and he just looked at my dad, and he gave him that look, like, how could you do that? But he never said anything, didn't report it to the authorities, and he just patched us up, and he actually told me, he said, I can't take that bullet out of your leg because if I do, it'll do more harm than good. And he said, let's just leave it and see what happens. And it's still in my, my right leg today. But I'll never forget that experience of having, to, of having to deal with the fact that your dad does not have your best interest in mind. And the moment when your dad betrays you and you realize that you're better off without him. And all of a sudden, your dad starts to make fear 
the moment, the, 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 the very, very thing that he uses to communicate with you is laced with fear. And everything that comes out of his mouth, he would say, call me an imbecile. One time, I remember he said to me, he called me a village idiot. And I remember he, sometimes he was so angry with me that you just didn't know what was going to happen. And the fear that would consume us as we were trying to just survive. It's kind of interesting how in the kingdom of darkness, fear is the weapon of choice. In the kingdom of God, the opposite, it is peace. God brings peace and joy. And one of the hardest things for me to do was to give up what I had been given and to give it away and take something that God wanted to give me. In Romans 8, it says, The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. I did not realize how much my mind was filled with fear. Every part of my life, fear was the norm. I just assumed that was normal for other people. I didn't know that that was not normal. Kids didn't come over to play at my house. I never spent time at someone else's home. I never saw a basketball game, never went to a football game, never had a job, never drove a car, never went on a date. And that experience lasted what seemed like an eternity. And it wasn't until the divorce, when my mom finally decided she couldn't take it anymore, and she divorced my dad, that all of that started to change. In Romans 12, it says, If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. I did not understand how important that is to God. I didn't understand. I just, I'd, all I wanted to do was whatever it would avoid pain. And that was the choices that I made. In Romans 14, it says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. When I finally got saved, I was in, actually, I got stationed in the Air Force in Great Falls, Montana. And when I was there, the, uh, I got, uh, uh, one of the guys I work with pulled me aside one day and said to me, Mark, he said, uh, I can see you're not doing well. And the anger and the bitterness in my soul consumed me. And it was such a powerful force, and I could not control it. And, and I started to do such crazy things that I started to self-destruct. And my, one of my friends pulled me aside, and he said to me, Mark, he said, I, I can see you're not doing well. He said to me, why don't you come to church? We're going to show a movie on Wednesday. And I thought to myself, I can't go to church. Church was for good people, and I was a bad person. But I thought... A movie? I suppose I could do that. And besides, I knew that people in church were always looking at you. And I thought to myself, if they look at the movie, they don't look at you. That seems like a safe thing to do. So I went to see a movie. And it was one of those end times kind of movies. And at the end of the service, the pastor talked about a God of mercy and a God who loved me. And those are things I had never experienced. And I remember... When he gave an altar call, I remember it was, the church was not different, much different than this. I remember I was sitting in the back, and I remember when I walked to the front of the church, I remember thinking to myself, you know, God, my whole life, I've never really amounted to anything, and I've failed at everything I've ever tried. I don't know why you would ever want me. And I remember when I knelt at that altar, it felt like a thousand pounds fell off my shoulders, and I felt clean. 
and it changed me. And I poured my life into that little church. I started working with the youth group. And some of the kids in the youth group were very interesting how God had to take something that I possessed. And that was the words of my father. And God had to take them from me and replace them with something else. And when I started working with the kids in the youth group, the kids, you know, I would tell them crazy stories about when I was a kid. And I got lots of them. You should ask the kids from Grace. I've heard a million stories of those guys. Sometimes I'm a substitute teacher at Grace, and I never get the curriculum done. I just tell crazy stories. <laughs> the kids will say, just tell us stories. Don't even look at that stuff. <laughs> Who cares what the teacher told you to do? So I told the kids from the, from the, the youth group stories and stuff, and, and they would say things to me like, oh, Mark, you, they would say, Mark Bowman, he's amazing, and they would say good things about me. And up until that time, I never really felt good about myself because whenever I heard my name, it meant something bad was coming my way. And, my, and I, I was ashamed of my name. And, and so teachers in school, well, they would just say, Mark Bowman, and I would think, oh, no, here comes bad news. And they would hand me back a paper. And, of course, I always saw that terrible grade on there, and I was ashamed of what I had done. And when my dad called my name, it usually meant something bad was coming my way. And so God had to replace it with young kids who were willing to say something good. And I had to learn to give up something that was not true and to take something that God wanted to give me. In uh, John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Isn't it interesting how God has to tell you things so that you will have peace? You have to be told. We don't just assume. Peace doesn't come from looking from in. We, we don't just look inside and find peace. We don't look to the world to find peace. The irony is we look to him and he's the one who places it in us. It's something that he possesses and he gives us. It's interesting, the only peace I ever had in life when I was a kid, my dad used to um, let me hunt and fish. He never bothered me for some reason when it came to that. A lot of things I did, he didn't like, and, uh, and he made my life miserable. But when it came to hunting and fishing, he didn't bother me. In fact, he gave me a, a big double-barrel 12-gauge shotgun. And um, I'm sure I was pretty underage for the moment, but he didn't care. He gave me a big box of shotgun shells. He said, here, kid, this is yours. And so when I went out hunting and fishing, that was the only peace I ever had. It was the only time where I could enjoy myself without somebody breathing down my neck. I remember one time, this was not uncommon, if we had done something wrong, if we would forget to take out the garbage, in the middle of the night, you would just hear the door open, a click of the light switch, and before you could hardly open your eyes, my dad would take the garbage and empty it on me while I was laying in bed, and the contents would spew all over me and onto the blankets, and I remember if you had eaten chicken or mashed potatoes the night before, it was all over me. And that was his reminder of the how we had done something wrong. And he brought fear to bear in every moment he could. I made it my mission in life to avoid fear. That was my only mission. If I avoided conflict, if I avoided volunteering for anything, somehow I avoided fear. Just avoid people. The only joy I had was being by myself.
My dog was my best friend. One time when I was a young boy, my dad decided he wanted to go out and dive on a shipwreck. It was a large wreck. It was in Lake Michigan. And we went out to dive on the wreck, and a storm came up. And uh, it was a big one. My dad's ship was big enough that we didn't, we didn't come into port very often unless it was a big storm, but this was a big one. We pulled into Leland, Michigan, and the ship's so big that there was no slip or place to put the ship. All the places that these, there were, most of the boats were 20, 30, 40 footers, but my dad's ship was 80 feet, and there was no place for my dad's boat. So what he did was he put it at the end of the gas dock because nowhere else could accommodate the boat. And so we pulled in for the night, let the storm pass. Early in the morning, I got up. I woke up before everybody else, and I, I decided I was going to go out and catch some crayfish. I have my little net, and I have a little pail, and I decided, hey, I like to eat crayfish. I'm going to go out and catch some. The water was clear. Went out, started w- running outside the uh, close to shore where all the rocks are. There's crayfish all over the place. I'm having a blast. I'm catching crayfish left and right. I got a pail full. After about two hours, I, I returned back to go back to get on the boat. And when I came walking down, this is a big marina, and when I came around the corner and I'm heading right up to the dock, I get within about 20 feet and I look up and all of a sudden, there's no 80-foot ship. My, mo- my heart sank because I knew that my dad had left and gone out to sea and he left me at port. I don't know a soul. I don't have any way to contact him and he's gone. And so a moment of panic came over me and I'm like, I'm desperate. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, no, I'm trying to control my emotions. I'm trying to think, just think, think, what am I going to do? I remember seeing on the end of the marina, there was a Coast Guard station. And so I thought to myself, I'm going to go over and walk to the Coast Guard station and ask somebody who's on duty there if they know what happened to that ship. But I told myself, I'm going to control my emotions. I'm going to control my fear. I'm going to walk up there and just ask calmly, by the way, what happened to that ship? And so everything in my being walked over there. I think I was 10, maybe 11. And I walked over to the Coast Guard station, and I got up to the guy on da- a duty station. There's a guy that watches the harbor. I knocked on the door. He opened the door. I walked up to him, and I said, as calmly as I could, yeah, where'd that big ship go? And the guy said, uh, oh, it left this morning. Why? Because I was supposed to be on it. Boom, the dam broke. I sobbed and cried <laughs> I completely lost it. I had no ability to control my emotions. I could not control my fear. It was beyond me. And he got on the radio and called my dad. And of course, my dad's within sight of the wreck. All of the other crew are got their, their wetsuits on, their scuba gear on, their flippers on. They're literally coming up to drop anchor. And guess who shows up? On the radio, there's a little boy here who wants to know where that big ship went. They didn't even know I wasn't on the boat. The boat's so big, they didn't even realize I wasn't on it. And so they have to turn around, go all the way back to port, killed an hour and a half just to get out there. Now they've got an hour and a half to go back to pick me up. It wiped out the whole day. He was furious. And I just, it just seemed to come to me in waves, one disaster after another. It's kind of interesting how In the world we live in today, the media has picked up on this. If it bleeds, it leads. Fear sells. Insurance companies figure this out. There's a, and I'm not trying to belittle them. I'm just saying that there's moments there where 
you can see that they're doing this. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. You ever have, when you work with an orphanage like I did, if you don't know, my wife and I ran an orphanage in Cambodia, or we did for the last 15 years. When you take in a kid from an orphanage, many of them have seen the worst. Many of them have had parents who killed themselves or died a slow death. Some mothers were prostitutes, and they got AIDS, and they would slowly die from that disease, and, and their children would watch it happen. And many of those kids were abused. And when we bring them into the orphanage, the trauma and the experience and the moment uh, that fear grasps a hold of their soul, and you can see it. And when they come in the orphanage, you do everything in your power to try to help them to overcome that fear. And I have learned from experience, many times it, you try to talk to them about the things that God wants to do in their life, but, but there's no substitute for the, the presence of God. There's no way that you can exchange what's happened to them for anything other than God's presence. Nothing else will fix it. And I've seen where people who, especially the kids from the orphanage, you guys know, you've probably seen this happen, where people that are, their lives are a mess. And you get them out of a bad situation and they almost seek out another bad situation because it's all they've ever known. In fact, there's a confidence and a comfort that comes from the known, even if it's bad. And even though they've been in a bad situation and you get them out of it, they will seek out another bad situation because it's all they've ever known. And they can't let go of the known, no matter how bad it is. It's interesting how fear causes us not to be able to recognize opportunity. Fear strips you and makes you blind. It makes it so that you can't see what God sees. Interesting also how fearful people seek out other people who are afraid. Like minds, they attract. It's interesting, when I was in Cambodia, there was a moment where, where uh, the country collapsed. The government was in a, it was a coup. It was a big battle, big tank battle, a big mess. And there was a bunch of people who were trapped in a hotel, and they couldn't figure out how to get out of the, the town we were in to the next town to try to flee the country. They were trapped. The road had been cut off. And I went over there. I heard there's some foreigners in this hotel that were trapped. When I got over there, it was so interesting to see them react with each other. It's like somebody would say, I don't know what to do. What do you think we should do? I don't know, but this will happen. And they just kind of, pretty soon, they were all in a frenzy of, of fear. I thought to myself, I got to get out of here. These guys don't know what they're doing, and I don't want to be around them. And they were just consumed with that. It's interesting how a man's fears and, and doubts are his own worst enemy. And I've learned that whatever you focus on can get your heart. If you focus on it long enough, it will get your heart. 
Isaiah 48 says this. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Why is it? Why is it that God, it's so important to him. If you go and look up the word peace, it's laced throughout the Bible. It's important to God that we have peace. I spoke at a a pastor's conference in Wisconsin a few years ago. I want to say it was 2005. I think it was 2005. It was a large conference of pastors. I want to say at least 150 pastors were there. And then the wives were there, and youth pastors, and et cetera. It was a large banquet, maybe 300 people. And they, they asked me in advance, Mark, would you be willing to share at this pastor's conference? And I, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. After I agreed to do it, I thought to myself, what an idiot. Why did I agree to do this? These guys have all been to Bible school. Some of them had their master's, PhDs, doctorates. I've never even been to Bible school. These men preach every single Sunday. They are better speakers than I am. They are better biblical scholars than I am. Why in the world did I ever agree to do this? And I I thought to myself, I'm going to try to find a way to get out of this one. When I finally realized what I had done, I'm like, I'm getting out of this one. And I finally said, Lord, what am I going to do? What am I going to bring to the table that will be of value to these men? God gave me a message. It was not a fun message to give. Uh, but I, and I, I hated doing it. It was a moment where I needed to do it. I could feel it from the Lord. I could sense it from the Lord. In fact, I was actually driving on the road when the Lord spoke to me. He said, I want you to do this. I had just spoken at a church. I was heading home. And the Lord said to me, I want you to share at this pastor's conference this message. And at first, I'm like, well, that sounds good. And I started to write it down as I was driving, kind of half paying attention, trying to keep from killing myself. Worse than texting. Don't try it. And when I realized what the Lord, the direction God was giving me, I thought to myself, I am not doing this. I'm not doing this. And I pushed it aside, and I thought, I'm just going to wait a couple weeks, and then I'll pray and start over again. And two weeks later, I said, okay, Lord, let's clean the slate. We're going to start over again. Now, what do you want me to do? And the Lord brought that back up, and this is the message I gave them. Now, you can imagine how this went over. High to the stock market height of the housing market. Everybody's making money. Everybody's happy. And churches are booming. Everything's going well. And I get up there at a pastor's conference, and I say this to them. There's a storm coming. And there's a famine coming, and it's going to be a famine of money. And God's going to shake your world. And God's going to shake the church. And you're going to experience a turmoil in the financial markets. And it's going to shake the very foundation of the people in your church. And you're going to have to know what it means to bring something to the pulpit that will bring faith into the hearts of your people because they are going to be stripped of the things that are not eternal. That's great, Mark. Why don't you have a seat? (laughs) You can imagine how that message went over. And I felt like, Lord, you, you cheated me. You never really walk out of that one feeling good about yourself. It's not fair. And then all of a sudden in 2008 when the market starts to roll over and then major changes start to happen. Now, I want to say this to you. I do not believe the worst is over. To be honest with you, I think it's just beginning. God is going to shake our world. He is going to shake 
the foundations of the nations. What I saw in God, God kind of painted a picture in my mind. I'll never forget it. It was so real. And he shook the foundations of the earth to the point where men were living in fear. And it brought such fear over people's lives that it paralyzed them. And they were not able to function. And the financial markets, people just stood there dumbfounded. And that people can't make decisions in those moments. And, and, and what I want to say to you is this. We do not want to be a part of that. God wants you to be the one who stands there and said, I have peace. I don't care if the world's afraid. I have peace. I know my God. You know what's interesting? The Lord had to teach me how to let go of fear. Fear has a hook. And it embeds itself in your soul. And it is the thing that Satan wants to use to control you. And you have to, you have to give that to God. And when you learn to give those things to God and you learn to take on ownership of the things that God says about you, I love you. You are my prized possession. You are my son. I love my sons. When they do something dumb, I let them know it. The instant he recognizes it, man, I'm all over it. I love you, boy. He's my boy. I love my sons. It would never enter my mind to abuse him verbally or to punish him. But I promise you, there's a spirit coming that's going to shake our earth. And it is not because God is angry. He wants us to recognize who he is and who the enemy is. Right now, we're so confused, we don't know what to believe. And so when God begins to shake this earth, you are the ones who need that peace. You have to be the ones who stand in the storm and say, I know my God, and I know what truth is. And I don't care how difficult the world is and what's going on. I want to be the one who stands before God and, gives, and gets peace. I'll be honest with you. This morning, well, let me back up. All week, I knew I was going to be speaking today. And... Uh, Pastor Brad asked me about uh, speaking, and I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. And I did, had no idea I would be asked to come in and um, be a substitute teacher at Grace all week long. And then to make matters worse, uh, Wednesday, about, I don't know, after about the second hour, all of a sudden, that virus that came through town, it went through me. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'm sick. And I can feel it, and I'm like, I am not going to make it. I got to get out of here. I got to go home. And so I'm out Wednesday, I'm out Thursday, I'm completely out of it. And by Friday, even the subs needed subs. They're, they're all gone. And so I, I said, well, I'll come in Friday anyway. I don't feel like a million bucks, I'll just do it anyway. And so I have no time to prepare. I'm just kind of figured, God, figure this out. I'll, I don't know what to do. Sunday morning shows up. Saturday, all this stuff happened. I had meetings to go to, stuff happened. I usually like to fast. Before I speak, I couldn't even do that. Saturday night, we had some get-together. We ate together. That went down the drain. And Sunday morning, I get up at 6, 6.30 this morning. My wife leans over to me and says, so do you know what you're speaking on? I said, I have no idea. She said to me, I don't think I'm going to church today. <laughs> <laughs> and so I basically, I spent some time with the Lord, and I said, Lord, my mind's a mess. 
I don't know what to do. But the peace of God came over me. I could feel his presence. It changes everything. Problems, trust me, I got a boatload of problems, just like everybody else. There's something about the peace of God that just solves problems. It just has a way of making you let go and go, you know what? I don't know what to do, but God loves me, and I love my God. So here's what I feel like the Lord wants me to do. Stand with me, if you would, please. Now, if you know me, you know I like to spend time praying at the altar. And I want to encourage you this morning because I believe that God did this for me, and I'm convinced that the Lord wants to do this for you. I know there are storms out there. Many of you are in the middle of them. Financial, everything from a marriage to children who are struggling. You've got a boss who doesn't like you. You've got a job you're not even sure you're going to be able to keep. You've got financial issues you're struggling, you're wading through. There are storms out there. And they, there's something about that that just seems to strip you of your confidence, of your peace, and your ability to hear from God. And so what I want to encourage you to do this morning, and I know this will take a, quite a bit of a stretch on your part. I would like you to come and spend some time at the altar and just, I want you to just ask the Lord for peace. We will pray with you. We will do everything just to spend time in God's presence. I don't have an agenda. I'm going to let you guys, uh, we're going to just have a time of worship. But I want, I don't want to, I don't want to minimize the value and the importance of the peace of God. And I have learned from experience, it, it's, there's no substitute for it, and it oftentimes can't be rushed. And so here's what I want to do. If you would like us to pray with you, myself and others will pray with you. If you just want the Lord to be able to meet with you, there's some things going on in your life, there's some storms, and you just need the Lord. You just need peace in that moment. I would like you to come and stand at this altar, and we're just going to wait upon the Lord and pray with you. Come on. I know there's those out there. You guys don't be afraid.